Welcome back to the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast, where we study the strategies and tactics of authoritarianism, as well as the most successful and inspiring models of resistance out there. Today I'm talking to Jean Boonin, who runs the Xinjiang Victims Database, an NGO doing unique work in publicly documenting the repression happening in the western region of China in meticulous detail and on a case-by-case level. Before we begin, a quick note that patrons of the podcast can join a live stream discussion session in between each episode and the next. We invite the episode's guest to join us for a deeper discussion and a Q&A session. More information on that at the end of the episode. Welcome, Jim Boonin, to the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast. Episode 11 of our podcast in July 2018 was with Mega Rajagopalan of BuzzFeed News, China correspondent, and we talked about China as the police state of the future. She recommended your work to me back then. I've uh, been following you ever since, and I find what you've done really fascinating. But I also find it fascinating that you're the one to have done it, because as far as I understand, your background is actually in mathematical optimization research and not in activism or human rights. So how did you get into this? Thank you for having me. My background is a bit mixed. So my original background, which is what I did my undergraduate studies in, that was in engineering. So that was mechanical and chemical engineering. And then after that, I kind of gave myself this, uh, what I made this decision to go to China and just teach English at first. I did that for a year. And then for a second year, I decided to go to Xinjiang just because I had very briefly traveled there. And I just found it to be a very fascinating region. And so that's what, in 2008, that I first tried living there and I tried studying Uyghur. I got really interested in the region at that time. And at that point, I just kind of got involved with that region, the people there, and the language on a side research uh, basis. And then a year later, I started doing a PhD in mathematical optimization while still doing kind of this Uyghur research stuff on the side. And then I left my PhD in Mubi in 2013 at the very end. And then I moved back to Xinjiang and then I continued working on this. What by then was basically sort of a language book. So I was researching the Uyghur language and I was writing a book on the subject. So that was really my reason for being here. And that was independent research. And then later when all of this current situation, this intensification, these mass incarcerations really started in 2017, Obviously, that had a very big effect on me. I was in the region at the time. I would say, while I do respect human rights uh, activists and people who choose to do human rights, I would never probably choose it for myself as a career. I'm really more scholarly inclined. But in that case, I was there. A lot of people I knew were being detained. I don't know if it's logical or illogical, but it was not really sort of a rational-based choice. It was just something that really strongly impacted me, and I wanted to do something about it. So I did what I could, which at the beginning, it wasn't this work of documentation. It was just more kind of me being all over the place and trying to post something about something I saw or meet with somebody who might have been writing about it or you know and it was just these little things and over time that kind of evolved and that kind of stabilized into the the work that i'm currently doing which is really more serious documentation systematic documentation of victims so you came to start the xinjiang victims database and can you tell us a bit more about what the database is and its purpose as well as how you operate 
So the database is basically, well, now it's a lot of things, but at its core, I guess, it's just a record, a detailed record of the individuals who have been, let's say, very severely impacted or put into either direct detention or a very compromised state because of the recent events that have been taking place since 2017. And so that's what we're doing. We're documenting one by one, non-anonymously, so everything kind of public. People who are either in hard detention, which can be in police custody, in, in the camps that the media has written so much about, in the formal prisons, or it can also be children, for example, whose parents are detained and we don't know who's there left to take care of them. It could also be people who, for example, cannot get documents to leave and rejoin their families abroad because their documents have just been confiscated and or testified for by their relatives abroad. It can also be people like that. It can be people who have been sent forcefully, for example, to work in factories or in some other sort of job placement that they've been put into. So the core of the database is to document all of that. And in addition to that, we also have a lot of kind of side uh, digressions. So we also try to document facilities where people are being held. We're trying to translate official documents that prove the detentions of certain people, or they can even be official media uh, releases. They can be official blog posts from Chinese sources. So we also try to collect evidence, any evidence that we come across that mentions specific people, and we try to bring it all together. And so originally the purpose was, I guess, it was uh, half documentary, half maybe even a little bit activism based in the sense that the idea was at that time when this was created in 2018 there were still a lot of people who were really quite afraid as there are still even today to speak out about what's happening and it's shocking if you think about it too and you think that there's literally hundreds of thousands of diaspora abroad who have connections to the region who have relatives or friends there most of whom know people who are detained and if you look at the number of people who are actually going public about this or speaking about this it's very tiny so it's maybe thousands at most a few thousand and so one of the goals of the database originally was that if you create this platform where everything is public and you can see how many people have spoken out how many people have been spoken for it would encourage more people to step forward and just add their voice because you know as this mass increases as you reach a critical mass it becomes less and less frightening to just add your one little voice to it but it's still of course valuable because it's through these kind of individual little voices that you can reconstruct this very or make this very big thing. So that's yeah. That was yeah, the one goal. of the things that consistently shocks me is how little this is spoken about and how few cases we actually know the details of, how few names or faces we know relative to the incredible scale of what's happening. Yeah, and that's really an achievement in quotation marks of the, the Chinese system because it's a general systematic achievement in the sense that it's probably it's part of the education system. It's part of the general kind of system of fear that I think people have there when they're growing up where, you know, even if they go abroad, they still believe that China, the government can always reach them, you know, they can always jail their relatives if they need to. And people just, even the people who live abroad and who are affected by this are touched, very strongly affected by this and they're just afraid. And then, of course, the overwhelming surveillance, which I guess other people have spoken about, where it's not even safe to just send each other messages to and from the region. People delete people they know outside of the country because they're afraid that that will be monitored and that will get them in trouble. 
And so you have this information vacuum that's been very effectively created. Of course, it's not perfect, which is why we still get a lot of stuff out of there. But it has successfully yeah, dampened or it's really basically yeah, filtered down this whole thing where yeah, you can't, you don't get a lot of voices coming out of there because it's just yeah, it's difficult and it's scary for the people there, obviously. Yeah. And how many victim entries do you have in the database? At the moment, I guess uh, over 11,000. So we'll probably get to 12,000 relatively soon. But yeah, it's sporadic. Sometimes we can add a few hundred in one day, and sometimes we can add a few dozen in a week or something. So it's it comes in bursts. But yeah, at the, at the moment, about 11,000. and Quite a few more to work through, because we do have sources that we're taking them from, and there's quite a lot there. And I believe you do that by going through official documentation as well as interviewing families and having them present you with evidence and documentation? We actually don't do very much interviewing. That's something that was maybe more of a thing two years ago when we just started, when people were more afraid of speaking out. So there's very little legwork these days. Others might be more active and do more legwork to actually go out to people and see if you could interview them and see if you can collect data about the relatives. Now there's just so much information coming in that we really operate just passively. So we just take what's already out there what or what we have access to, and we just work through it. So most of the work now is just really being done virtually. It's been done, being done on the laptop. Yeah, it's a mix. I think the, a lot of information comes from, for example, there's this whole cache of data that was obtained by the scholar Adrian Zenz that literally has local government spreadsheets for a lot of towns in southern Xinjiang and there you get very explicit mentions of, so you basically have these kind of poverty alleviation records that tell you kind of the status of different families and their poverty status so you have a village roster and 10 to 15 percent of these people are marked with a special check mark of this person's been sentenced this person has been sent to education or whatever so we have documents like that we go through and so we import so a lot of data these days comes from that but as always a lot is coming from just public sources so social media a lot of people testify for their relatives on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, and just video testimonies on YouTube. That's something else that we have a side project where we encourage once a month people to submit video testimonies about their relatives. And we then, of course, we post them. We also watch them in case there's new information there. And so it's a mix of public and private sources right now. And of course, by crunching this really large amount of data, you managed to get an insight into a lot of the trends that are happening before they actually become explicit or become noted by most people. That definitely helps. One danger of testimonies is, of course, they don't show the full picture, but they are pretty good at signaling certain trends that aren't being really talked about. And so through them, it's been quite easy to see how the whole detention system has been evolving. For example, in late 2018, people actually started getting released from the quote-unquote re-education centers. So that was just, it was very strange at first because a lot of people started getting detained in 2017. All throughout 2018, there wasn't really much news of people getting let out. And suddenly at the end of 2018, you just got news from relatives left and right who were saying that their relatives were being released in Xinjiang. 
And that, that already was starting to become apparent in late 2018, early 2019 from testimonies, essentially. And it also started becoming apparent that a very big problem is that a lot of people are in prison, which is something that was overshadowed by the whole camp system for a long time, because that's what uh, a lot of people, most people have really focused on because it's, it's, I guess it's buzzworthy or whatever. It's very attention grabbing to say that these these concentration camps and people are getting taken. There's millions in there and da, da, da. And were being released from these camps and sent to formal prisons? Well, a lot of people were being released and sent to either some sort of forced labor or were being re-injected into society just in some form, either through some sort of forced job placement, which didn't need to be a factory. It could just be like being assigned to be a security guard somewhere. Or some people were even being allowed to come back to their old jobs. Some people were being transferred to some sort of house arrest. So they were trying to re-inject these people back into society in different ways. Some people, I don't think that the majority of them, this is the majority, it's probably, I don't know, I can't really guess. If I had to guess, I would say maybe 10, 15, 20% of those who were in camps, they quote-unquote, did not pass, and so they were sentenced while they were in camps and then later transferred to prisons. But it's not really, this is an issue that's really been missed during this whole this whole campaign, is that the prisons, they really, if you look at the data, the prisons, they started simultaneously with camps. So in 2017, if you actually look at how people were getting detained, you know, of those people getting detained, maybe if you had three people detained, two of them would be sent to a camp and one would be sent to a prison. So it was a comparable scale, but everything was being presented as a camp. But actually quite a lot of people already starting in 2017 were getting uh, really long uh, and very rushed prison sentences. And long meaning something like 10, 15, 20 years on very strange charges without any apparent trial and without any their verdict being made public or even in some cases shared with their relatives. So this was already happening in 2017, 2018, through 2019 as well. And so this is something that's been going in parallel and hasn't really been noticed because the camps have gotten all the attention. And now now you're in this kind of situation where you have still hundreds of thousands of people, a lot of them innocent, most likely in formal prisons with very long prison sentences in the quote-unquote official legal system. And this is a big thing because for camps, it's hard to say. From testimonies, at least, in 2018, you were getting plenty of testimonies. And even 2019, you were getting testimonies for people who were being held in camp. Now, you don't hear it very much. So one gets the impression, at least from them, that a lot of people have been, who were in camp, were kind of re-injected back into society. And the ones who are still not freed are now serving time very long terms in in prisons. And this is something that I think really should be addressed right now. Um, but yeah. That's that's something that I haven't really caught a hint of from the media coverage. I think it's been, like you said, completely missed. Yeah, it's not. You can't even say it, it hasn't been missed in the sense that, you know, the outlets have covered it. The New York Times covered it pretty well. But after they covered it, there were very few outlets that did any sort of additional covering. So with camps, you can get hundreds of articles about camps with the, the prison, the attitude seems to be that's okay, New York Times already covered it, so it's nothing new, it's not that important. But it's, it obviously is because there's hundreds of thousands of people in there right now. And when you listen to people who are testifying abroad, it's really, 
it's I think over half of them are basically talking about people who are relatives who are in prisons now. And it's really painful to listen to that because you hear it again and again, but it, it's not being directly addressed in neither in media nor in kind of uh, uh, dialogue with China. It also, I'm not sure how much of it was intended as a PR strategy, but using formal prisons has, it sounds a lot more legitimate than ad hoc camps being used. And even though we know that China doesn't have an independent judiciary, going through the formal justice system makes it sound more legitimate. Yeah, that's part of it, definitely. And I think people are, it's, I definitely know people in the diaspora abroad who are hesitant to highlight the fact that their relative has been sentenced because they don't want people to think that their relative is an actual criminal. So for them, it's easier to say that my relative is in camp because that, that kind of goes with a whole, that jumps on this whole bandwagon thing. And then, you know, obviously the person is innocent because they're in camp. Whereas they fear that if they say, okay, like my father has been sentenced and given this long sentence, people think, oh, then your father must have done something wrong. And so that's definitely, I don't know how much of that is intentional. Certainly, again, it's not really like it's been a change in strategy. This has been going on intensely since 2017 together with the camps. But uh, yeah, that's certainly, I think it makes it harder to attack because you have to then, you have to challenge the whole legal system in China and say that basically your system is illegitimate. And that's a much stronger challenge than to say you have these camps where you disappear people without reason. And so it's, yeah. And I think one of the things that comes out of the data, I'm not sure you were intending to do this when you set out to build a database or in your decisions to make it public and filterable and searchable. But that's an incredible tool for researchers and human rights organizations and journalists. And being able to comb through that data allows you to spot other things. One of the things I noticed is that it's not just Uyghurs who are in the camps. And I've heard disputed accounts of this. And people have told me that this is a matter of geopolitical considerations for the Chinese government. Other people insist that it's a war on Islam as a religion, and that's their primary objective. I don't know if you want to get into that, but I think it's a documented fact now that it's not just Uyghurs who are in these prisons. It's others, including Kyrgyz and also Han Chinese Muslims. I mean, it's, it's everybody who, let's say, is not... Well, A, if you're not Han Chinese, you, I think if you're not Han Chinese in Xinjiang, then you have a very high probability of belonging to a Muslim group, so you're automatically targeted, I think. But yeah, Han Chinese is another group that has been targeted quite a lot is Han Chinese, for example, Christians as well. And that's been a general trend all over China, but it's also existed in Xinjiang, so there have been there are Christian, Han Chinese Christians in Xinjiang who have also been incarcerated, just again on very dubious grounds. But yeah, it's uh, it's definitely not only Uyghurs, and that's again that's a media thing, and that's part of, I guess, the Uyghurs. They don't have a very strong, how to put it, they have a very big disadvantage in the sense that they don't have their own country. And that's something that's very, that's something that Uyghurs know very well and obviously are very sad about. But an, an advantage they do have is that they do have this kind of very influential diaspora that's all over the world, including in some very influential countries. 
And uh, it has helped with it, working with the media that has helped push the Uyghur message really out. And one of the results is that, yes, it's now largely being presented as an Uyghur thing, which is also, it's right because 90, over 90% of victims are probably Uyghur. And they are probably in the most difficult situation because they don't have a country that they could just go abroad to. But they, it's, it is interesting also because one of the most interesting phenomena in this whole uh, thing since, since 2017 has been the Kazakhstan factor. So because a lot of Kazakhs were detained, and it's very difficult for me to say, you know, that people are being detained for their religion or people are being detained for their ethnicity or people are detained, being detained just because they're not Chinese enough or they're not seen as loyal enough. That's just a very hard. I don't want to get into the motivations. I don't want to try to get inside the heads of the people who are carrying out these policies. But yeah, I think when so many Kazakhs were starting to get detained as well, in addition to the Uyghurs, you have something like maybe 11 million Uyghurs in Xinjiang, then you have something like 1.5 million Kazakhs, according to the official statistics. And so many of them started to get detained with a bit of a lag in the sense that Uyghurs were really already getting hit hard and mass incarcerated in the spring of 2017. Kazakhs had started more in the fall of 2017. But then basically, yes, the religious people, so all the imams, people who worked at mosques, they were immediately taken and they seem to have gotten the worst treatment. And so a lot of the people who were jailed were also in this category. There were imams, there were religious people. People who had links to Kazakhstan, which is a lot of Kazakhs in, in Xinjiang, who had relatives there, who talked to people over there, who just had WhatsApp on their phone because that's how they would talk to people in Kazakhstan. For this reason, they would be detained. I guess you could just debate for a very long time why the Kazakhs get detained. We couldn't they just leave them alone? And that kind of also, it does bolster this argument that it's all about Islam. It's all about getting everybody who doesn't conform, which would include all the Turkic ethnic minorities in that region. But for me, it's on a purely maybe a mathematical level. I would say it would be impossible for them to detain the Uyghurs on such a scale and just leave the Kazakhs completely alone. If you look at how they've been trying to create the information vacuum there, you could not just detain all of these Uyghurs and then another group like the Kazakhs who have a very similar language, who have very similar culture, same religion, and just let them keep going back and forth to Kazakhstan and just telling their relatives in Kazakhstan about what's happening. So obviously it becomes collateral damage at that point, I think irregardless of their initial motivations. So I think they decided that if you're going to detain a million Uyghurs, you are going to have to detain all the witnesses as well. So it's one of those, I think, one of those kind of chain reactions. That's incredibly chilling. We've spoken about the underrepresented role of the prisons in what's mm. happening. And we've also spoken about the demographics of the people being swept up in this. Are there any other big misconceptions or misunderstandings? Is there anything you're witnessing that most people don't know about or don't realize? Oh, let's see. I want to say that those are the, those are definitely the biggest ones. I think one of the things that, and this sounds strange to say this, and I have to be careful in saying this, but there are certainly aspects that I think that aren't as, let's say, as bad as sometimes they may be presented in, in media. 
So now it's reached a stage where people are saying, oh, they're using the word genocide in almost every article that talks about this, and it's becoming standard. And some people just casually now call it a genocide. And I think it's not, it's not necessarily wrong to do so because what kind of genocide it is you could argue about certainly it's for me it's always been a sort of genocide in slow motion when you actually live there and you see like the effect that it's having on people and how it's just it's breaking people's spirits it's splitting people up it's making some people suicidal making some people really depressed it's not the same as genocide where you're just shooting people or doing mass executions but it's still there so i think for me i probably not disagree with that term but still it's sometimes I guess as media tends to, you get the, this image of a total hell, like nobody has freedom, nobody has the right to speak Uyghur. There's certainly a lot of restrictions, but there's still kind of pockets of freedom. And there's still, if you think about it, that only 10% are detained, then still 90% are still trying to go with their lives. And uh, I'm not trying, of course, to justify anything. I'm just, that's just something that it's important to keep a balanced view. It's about the impressions that using such a powerful and emotionally loaded term can create yeah that's part of it and uh, also another thing i guess that is always a bit tricky with eyewitness accounts because eyewitness accounts you get quite a lot of these very strong powerful gory eyewitness accounts that again make it into the media again i don't know if that really paints a very complete picture of the situation. The, the things that some eyewitnesses talk about, such as rape happening or strange injections. Injections, I'm actually still not sure about. Rape, there are cases definitely that I know do happen. But this is a difficult thing, I think, in any sort of crisis, is to separate local corruption or local abuse from general policy. And so I think that's something that's also happening quite a lot here because you hear one testimony mentioning that somebody was raped and the activists will come in that this is a systematic government-backed campaign or something like that. And then it's kind of media may also start to paint it that way. Some things tend to become sensationalized. At the same time, there's a lot of those things that are true. When you ask me if there's something else, it's difficult to... Sometimes I get the impression that certain things are being sensationalized, some things are maybe not being presented in a completely balanced way. Some of these accounts that I've been skeptical of, rumors of things like mass organ harvesting, and they're often very poorly evidenced. I often share the hesitancy to give credit to these accounts without more corroboration. And also, of course... This kind of stuff thrives when there is a genuine severe shortage of information and people are being kept in the dark about what is happening. Uh, And I guess also there's an element of helplessness in the sensationalization that people often feel like there is nothing that they can do other than amplify anything they do here, even if they don't have the uh, opportunity to actually corroborate it. Yeah, that's the other, that's definitely uh, an element. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, which is extremely fascinating, is I've heard that your team has actually had some success in pressuring authorities to have certain individuals released by making them aware that the cases are being watched and haven't gone completely under the radar. Is that true? And can you explain it? I would say, oh, I think that somebody is giving us a lot of credit. I don't know where you heard it from. We or the database, uh, we cannot take credit for anyone's situation getting better directly. So I cannot. I don't know of any cases where I know that something that happened in the database 
directly influenced a person being released or a person being given different treatment. Our role is really more of a support role. One thing that has definitely happened, and this is, this is pretty well documented by now, is that there are a lot of cases where people have gone public. And as a result, their relatives in Xinjiang have been you know, either released or have been given better treatment, for example, transferred out of camp to house arrest. Or they've been contacted by the local authorities who then told them, you know, to stop speaking. Or they've been contacted by their relatives directly who then will say, no, no, stop speaking about this. And it's quite clear that they're being pressured to do so. And so there's plenty of cases where people have gone public and it has made things better. Quite a lot of probably at this point, at least dozens. There might be over even a hundred documented such cases. But that's not really us. That's just individuals campaigning for their relatives. It's media writing about uh, the different victims. Personally, I've only had one experience where I directly helped somebody where I'm pretty sure it, it, it did have an effect. on. But that was, again, that was not through the database. That was really through media where I wrote an article about a student who had returned to Xinjiang from Kyrgyzstan and disappeared. And then within a few days after the article was published and it was picked up by Kyrgyzstan media, that student suddenly reappeared, starting sending marriage photos, saying that he had gotten married. And then within a month was actually able to go back to Kyrgyzstan, but then stayed only a few weeks and then went back to China and disappeared. But in that case, I would say it was a pretty direct effect of the article and the media coverage on, on him being able to, even if only briefly, to become public and to come back or even leave China temporarily. But in many cases, media coverage helps. And so in that sense, we also do help in some sense that we can work as informal fixers to help journalists find people to write about. Sometimes we have some volunteers who write for us and then publish not in mainstream media, but in lesser media, or maybe like B-level media. And again, there we try to make those connections where if we feel like there's somebody who's really been campaigning for their relatives but hasn't been noticed or hasn't been written about, we can give that to a volunteer journalist and they will interview that person and they will write an article and it will come out somewhere. And sometimes that may have an effect. We play more of a support role. Obviously, kind of the work we do encourages people to speak out. I definitely know that there are people who have spoken out because they've seen other people speak out. And then sometimes that leads to very good results for their relatives. I don't want to directly claim uh, credit for any specific case where the database did something and that resulted in a good result because I don't have any evidence of that. But we have contributed and we have created support for this atmosphere where more people are speaking out. And that in general, statistically, seems to result in much better outcomes than people who just stay silent. Although we don't always know because the people who stay silent don't tell us the results either. So yeah, there were quite a lot of people. When people started getting released, a lot of people were released who were never, whose relatives never spoke for them. So it's not, it's not like there are people who are in the dark are doomed. But at the same time, of course, I think, again, speaking purely mathematically, if you highlight specific cases, they automatically become more expensive for the Chinese authorities, because then they know that if we abuse this person or if this person dies in custody, there are people abroad who are paying attention to this case, and that will be, at the very least, uh, a headache for us to deal with. It increases the, the reputational cost of abusing those specific people. Yeah.
So that's that's on a purely mechanical, logical level. That's that's what I mean. But that's very abstract, of course, and I don't have data to back up the fact that we're helping people by keeping their cases alive. But that's just like, me. It, logically, it makes a lot of sense. Hopefully, one day we'll actually have some concrete proof that the people there are reading the database and somehow reacting. But at the moment, no, we I don't have anything out. Unfortunately. And your website also mentions that you aim to, by creating this database, create the foundations for future legal actions, whether that's reparations or accountability or otherwise. It's great that there's a long-term objective as well as the immediate-term actions. Do you have any idea what form some potential legal action could take? Or have you even heard from anyone who is preparing to utilize international law? That's been a trend that's been starting now in the past few months. I'm not really directly involved in it with this very much, so I don't know all the details. But, for example, I think in Germany, German residents even, not necessarily German citizens, are allowed to sue specific individuals in the Chinese, for example, police or legal system that they think are guilty of abusing their relatives. They're allowed to actually take them to some sort of international court, if I'm not mistaken. I think, uh, again, I'm not, uh, I'm not working on this directly, so I could be, could be making some mistakes, but I do believe that there are people now in Germany who are trying to mobilize and start to take formal international legal action against specific uh, individuals for specific cases. And that's been over the past few months. And so that's one example. I don't know if all countries can do that. As I, as I understood, Germany is a, specific, is a sort of an exception, but it's not the only exception, if I'm not mistaken. I think there are others. And recently, also now you have things like the Uyghur Tribunal, you have these kind of international groups, lawyers who are trying to get together and try to collect evidence, present some sort of case. And again, I'm not super closely involved with that. I really focus more on just maintaining what we do and making it accessible and making it uh, easy to browse and getting as much of it out as we can. But that is something that's been a new stage that this has been evolving into with respect to international action is to actually look more and more into what's possible on a purely legal basis. The answer is not nothing. So there are some things that are definitely possible. Of course, I don't expect China to be very forthcoming and to say, yes, of course, so let's have these court cases. But still, it's, it's, it's one more pressure point. It's one more approach. And I think that will be a big thing or a big theme in the coming year or two years. But yeah, at the moment, I guess I'm not enough of an expert to really comment on it. But it is happening. It's not hopeless, in my opinion. And of course, the fact that these aren't uh, nameless, faceless victims increases the risk of being complicit in these abuses. I know that there have been discussions of adding Chinese officials to the Magnitsky sanctions list, the targeted sanctions list. I think that's already been done in the US and it's being discussed elsewhere. But the fact that the victims are known and their cases are documented and you're keeping such a close track of locations and conditions, as far as I know, one of the most difficult things about accountability after mass crimes is this documentation and the fact that so much information tends to be lost or damaged. And I hope the fact that you're very publicly documenting this is at least causing some calculation behind the scenes and some individuals to really consider their exposure and liability and perhaps even hold back from the worst of abuses, knowing that there is a a non-zero risk 
this will come back and affect them in the future. Yeah, that's definitely the hope. For me, it makes sense. And it's one of the things, of course, that we want to do. And in some sense, that's probably the most we can do, unfortunately. Of course, it'd be nice to have some sort of superpower to take specific individuals and just get them out of detention or make their lives better. And it's not always possible. But it's, yeah, by keeping things as, I guess, as public and as visible as we can make them, then, yeah, I, I also do think that there are hopefully people inside the system who are well aware of that. And But yeah, yeah, at this, at this point, unfortunately, it's just a hypothesis, even if very logical. And, but we don't know for a fact that's what's happening. But I hope so, of course. I think you're trying to make them aware as well, though. I noticed a placement on the job section of your website for a PSB caller. And are you already doing this or not? But you're actually recruiting for people to be calling police stations across China and asking about victims by name, recording the phone calls and reminding the authorities directly that their yeah. status is being watched. Yep. And it's, it's again, unfortunately, to date, it's hard to say it's had any positive effect. We have been doing that for... The PSP caller is actually a great position, but it's not one that many people want to do. Some people, Chinese speakers, are often Chinese citizens, and so they don't want to... They don't want to put themselves at risk by calling Chinese police stations because they're afraid of things like voice recognition, although some use mm. kind of some mask their voices. Other people just get very stressed and that is stressful. I it's not something that wouldn't be like my top weekend plan to, you know, like let me sit down this Saturday and call some Chinese police stations. It's not really relaxing. It's not a fun thing to do. It's very stressful to call them and because it's like you it's you're dealing directly with that force that you're trying to fight against and trying to stop but they're quite they're quite silly and that's it's something that we've done i guess we started doing it more in the summer of last year because we had this one case that i also feel very personally responsible for actually because it was it was a sort of unique case where a relative of someone in xinjiang sent to us these letters from camp that his relative in xinjiang had sent them, the, the person in Xinjiang had gotten these from his parents and his brother. It was these kind of like very propaganda nature letters written from the camp detainees where they said, oh, like I came to this camp because I illegally went on a pilgrimage 20 years ago, which violated the articles one, whatever of the Chinese law. And I should have been sentenced to five or 10 years, but the merciful party has instead sent me to this training center to correct my mistakes. And, you know, I've learned a lot about the law. I've learned I've improved my Chinese and they're very painful to read when you first read them, but they're also extremely valuable because it's extremely valuable first-hand evidence. And so this guy um, in Xinjiang actually shared them with his relative abroad and his relative abroad and submitted it to us. And he said, okay, I think we should make this public. I said, are you sure? He said, yes. I then went ahead also and translated them and I posted them. And after they were posted, they got shared around. And then the guy who actually submitted them was detained within a week. So that's an example where kind of international action has not yielded a good result, unfortunately. It's one of, of two, maybe, or, one, or the only one that I can really think of where it's really, you know, that's where you have to be careful. Of course, yeah, that's something I feel personally responsible for as well. Since then, we've been calling that police station where he was detained. 
It was actually the same one that was credited recently. After Mulan came out, the credits of Mulan, they thanked the Turpan public security. It's actually that one that detained this guy. And so we called them, we started calling them pretty actively in the summer of last year and just asking about this guy who was detained. And at first they, they were picking up. And then after a few phone calls, after like a few phone calls over a couple, two or three days, it was funny because they actually, they picked up and they started pretending to be a funeral home. <laughs> Probably security were and they were, no, you got the wrong number. This is a funeral home. And like once, like they would even try to whisper, no, oh, this is a funeral home. And like, it was, <laughs> but then like you called them like two days later and they were the public security borough again. And it was obvious, like they would just like, they would sometimes start the conversation normally. Then once they realized the call was from somewhere from the outside, then they would switch and they would start saying, oh no, we're secure. We're, we're, we're a funeral home. This is a place where we burn corpses. Is wow. what they said. So like in that case, it actually it had an effect. The question is, was it positive or negative? But it had some effect. But uh, yeah, so we have that position. We don't have a lot right now. I think we have one or two people who are doing it more or less regularly. But it's very hard to get results. And and part of that is because the police just hang up on you. So mm-hmm. you call them, you say, hey, I'm looking for this person. And they just hang Or you call them and say, who are you? And you say, like, I'm a friend of this person. I'm looking. And they're like, oh, like, yeah, we can't help you. And they hang up. And so it's impossible to have any sort of real dialogue with them most of the time. So that's uh, it makes it hard. But yeah, it's, it's something that I would love to do more of. That it would be nice more people wanted to volunteer for that because that's really that's really an unexplored tactic i think it could be it's something that anyone who speaks chinese really could do and if, if you can imagine like hundreds thousands of people just constantly daily calling chinese police stations and asking about specific people that probably would produce an effect in its own but yeah, it's just it's hard incredible. it's hard to find i mean it's it's possible it's absolutely possible it's not like there's technical limitations it's not even a huge time limitation for a lot of people but it's getting people to want to do that that's a different story. yeah i guess if anyone's listening who is a fluent chinese speaker <laughs> who isn't planning to go back on holiday in china anytime soon they could volunteer be perfect for this yeah so what else are you recruiting for? What other roles are open in your team? The mix, it's always hard to say. So like we were, we're always, people who speak Chinese usually are always welcome because we have a lot of documents or like a lot of verdicts, official detention notices in Chinese that need to be translated. Uyghurs with fairly good knowledge of English are welcome because again, we have quite a lot of Uyghur language materials, either video testimonies mm-hmm. or articles, for example, from Radio Free Asia that are published really mostly in Uyghur. We have a lot of those materials that also need Uyghur speakers who know good English to go through and then import the data into the database. Sometimes they're just really random jobs, but it's still, for me, it's a challenge because I have to manage a lot of these volunteers and part-timers. It can also be quite a time sink for me because like one of the things that we definitely need to do a lot of is editing. So like we have over half of the database that isn't really edited in the sense the data was often imported by a non-native English speaker. Someone needs to go through it. Someone needs to clean it up. Sometimes information is not put in the section that it should be put into. And so it just needs to be made in good English and neat. We need a lot of people to do that. We, we had a lot of people before volunteering to be editors, but then we say, okay, you create them an account and then they just disappear. So there's a lot of this kind of five-minute mm-hmm. enthusiasm. 
Sometimes I even feel, I even wonder if some people are using our, our thing as a sort of a CV thing, a CV booster to work for us for, you know, a week and then just disappear and then say that they were an editor for our database. But yeah, I don't know. But definitely, I suppose the thing that we're most in need of, and this is probably true in very many places, it's just very dedicated, creative people. So people who can work pretty independently and learn pretty quickly and you know are dedicated to this really want to keep going with this and so those kinds of people are hard to find unfortunately but they're extremely valuable of course because then they make it very efficient they make it very easy for me as well but yeah yeah. anybody with chinese skills is always welcome there's plenty of work there and psv callers yeah certainly So if anyone's uh, interested who's listening, get in touch and we'll include your contact detail in the description of the podcast, Gene. How's how's your funding looking? Are you fundraising at the moment? Funding is looking good. So we're not fundraising at the moment. We still do get uh, donations that come in every few days from random people, which is nice. We're funded 100% by crowdfunding. I can't really complain about it because since the beginning, I feel whenever we've been running close to having no money, and we said, okay, we're running out of money or crowdfunding again, people have generally been quite good. And so we've usually raised money quite quickly. And we've never been at a point where I've actually had to cut people or cut costs somehow because we couldn't uh, just, I couldn't pay people. We've always been able to raise the money that we need. And it's gotten even better about three months ago, maybe even more now, four months ago, when the first kind of the forced sterilization reporting started coming out. And then people started calling this a genocide. And then suddenly a lot of people who were not paying attention before started paying attention. And suddenly we started getting a lot of donations. So I think we raised something like $20,000 in just two weeks or two or three weeks. And that was quite uh, that was quite sudden because before that we had maybe raised I don't know sixty thousand over the course of almost two years. So I've been able to take one guy and transfer him to f- almost basically full time. So he works thirty hours a week now for us, and so that's helped things and that's helped things go a lot quicker. We still have the sum that we raised. Part of that is going to pay his salary, of course, as well as the others. Once I feel like we're running out again, then I'll, I'll make another call for donations. Thankfully, for the, for the past few months, I haven't had to do that, though. So it's been, I guess, not bad. I could promote to full-time as well. But then in that case, I really need I need either a big burst of donations or I need a very dedicated donor who's willing to put down a fairly big sum. And that would help. But at the same time, I'm very happy with what we have right now, actually. So we're able to operate pretty, I think, efficiently and uh, not even quite able to keep up with everything that's yeah, that's coming our way, but still, yeah, still working quite a lot. That's great. So unless you have anything else you'd like to add, I think that's all of my questions. It's certainly... For people who are not super familiar with this, I would just say, yeah, it's uh, something that should be paid more attention to. I think one of the things that a lot of people don't really, and now I sound more like an activist saying this, but this is quite empirically documented. It's uh, one of the things that I think misconceptions that people have with respect to this whole crisis, let's say, is that there's not very much that they as individuals can do. And it's not really something that I've learned over the past two years. It's, It's actually not true. And so this has been kind of this is something that you've seen on the sort of individual level where literally like some people have made YouTube videos and within a few days their relatives would be released 
just because of this one YouTube video they made. And that's an, an example of an individual actually having some sort of effect on the things happening in Xinjiang. My point in saying this is that there's quite a lot of potential for grassroots initiatives, completely independent initiatives by all sorts of different people to improve the situation. And one thing that certainly I think does begin to help, and this is I think fairly well documented by now, is that it's just attention. And so creating a sort of a counter surveillance system where we're surveilling victims and we're highlighting their stories and we're providing or providing support to their you know relatives or abroad or providing support to ex detainees that managed to leave and go abroad. These are all important things and they can all be done and they can all have a very helpful effect. It's a very challenging situation and what China really wants, I'm sure, is for this to go away and to not be talked about. And in some sense, there are some indications that on the one hand, it's not completely working because China's image has been falling quite drastically over the past year. At the same time, with respect to the recent Xinjiang coverage, I feel like it is slowly starting to go down. And it is a concern I am having that some people are starting to normalize it, even if they know they shouldn't, where it's okay, this has been going for three years now, and it's probably not going to get resolved tomorrow, and this sense of urgency is starting to go away. And that's a problem because I think for the people there, of course, it's still a huge sense of urgency, you know. So more people getting involved, more people just being creative, taking their own initiatives, even if it seems silly, or it seems, I don't know, non-consequential at first. It's very important that people who care about this, they somehow get involved. And it doesn't have to be through a database. It can be completely something of their own creation. So that's just something I would, you know, encourage people to think about. Just talking about this issue, just brainstorming and creating different projects, initiatives, it could potentially go a long way. So that's, yeah, that's probably my, the last thing I would want to say. Thanks very much, Jean, and thank you for coming on the podcast. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. I find it fascinating how the 21st century has brought such efforts in documentation to the public. Another great example with some parallels is Bellingcat, I guess, doing this research in a way that's unaffiliated with existing international institutions, yet enabling the work of so many of them with the open release of that data. There's probably going to be dozens or scores of lawsuits in the future holding people accountable that will be based on this open source investigation released publicly by organizations that were not funded by governments or part of fact-finding missions often powered by volunteers and small backers, and led by people who are deeply passionate rather than career managers. There's a link to the Xinjiang Victims Database in the description of the podcast, and I highly recommend supporting this most worthy cause, as well as keeping an eye on their work. If you can volunteer, that's probably one of the best things you can ever do. And a reminder that this podcast is audience supported, and you can find the link to our Patreon in the description as well. Patrons get access to a special follow-up discussion about a week after each episode, to which we invite the episode's guest, and we get the chance to go deeper and ask more questions, as well as meet the other listeners. And as well as Patreon support, a share or a review goes a long way towards helping us expand our audience, if you think we're worth it, of course. I'm Ahmed Gatnash, and I'll see you next time on the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast. يا مصطفى يا 
كتابا لكل قلب تألم ويا زمانا سيأتي يمحو الزمان المزيم يا مصطفى يا كتابا لكل قلب تألم ويا زمانا سيأتي يمحو الزمان المزيم